0: Welcome to A-Push with Thunder Bacon! Alright guys, so we are here to do your Period 3 review based on the survey you submitted. And what we are looking at is really this period of the French and Indian War and these big changes from 1754 to 1800. Um, so we're really going to start out with kind of the causes and effects of the French and Indian War and kind of
1: span out from there. One of the biggest po- uh, takeaways really from this era is it's all cause and effect because when you're looking at what's going on with the French and Indian War um, leads directly into the American Revolution. So this time period, there's so much happening. So while it seems like we're talking about a lot of stuff, there's still a lot of other stuff out there.
0: All right. So when we really dive into the French and Indian War, we know that as the colonies are um, growing and expanding, people are finally being born in America. We still have people coming over from Great Britain. We know that the 13 colonies are expanding into that western territory which is why they become interested in the Ohio River Valley. Here's this big area, fertile land, the Great Lakes are there Um, but the problem is so are the French and the Native Americans. This is the huge place where all the fur trading is happening which is going to cause some issues. Um, We have a lot of tension between the British and the French. We know that a lot of stuff is carrying over from the wars in Europe. You know this is kind of going to stem over from the seven years war, but we're also getting past the first hundred year war and the second hundred years war in Europe. So the European drama is going to spill over. Um, We know during this time, there's going to be a lot of issues with Native Americans. We know most of them are allied with the French because of the fur trading, also because of the French treatment. Um, There's a lot of tension with the Native Americans and the British encroachment or the British colonial encroachment onto Native American land, especially during that into that western territory of the Ohio River Valley. Um, And then we start to see the French and the British trying to take advantage of the Native Americans to form these alliances where they're kind of going into each other. Um, And this escalates to the point where we see Ben Franklin with his Albany Plan in 1754. This is, you know, join or die. The colonies have to work together to try and deal with the Native Americans until it actually escalates into the French and Indian War.
1: So keep in mind, the colonies have been around for about 150 years at this point. Um, so there's a lot of culture, there's a lot of kind of colonial identity, um, but we're starting to see also the beginnings of our revolutionary figures. So as Ms. Funderburg said with ben franklin and um join or die we also see the introduction of george washington baby at this point. george baby george like he's like 24 years old he's, he's like 21 itty bitty baby. baby baby um he's working he's not even a general yet but he's part of the um british military um and he's going into the ohio river valley into these forts and he's under the direction of general braddock and general braddock is a British soldiers. So keep in mind during this entire thing that Washington is being trained under the British and the British are the greatest military in the world. Kind of important in terms of where these Americans and these colonists are really getting all of these ideas from. I mean, it's stemming directly from the British. Um, So he, if you think of Hamilton and think about, um, what is the name of that song? History has its eyes on me, where he's talking about, um, he led his men into a massacre. This is really going to be the beginning of the French and Indian War. The war hasn't even really started yet, um, but he and his men are going into Fort Duquesne, which is about Pittsburgh today, um, and are totally massacred by French scouts and Native Americans. Um, And he comes out and it's just life changing for Washington and it really kind of grounds him keep in mind too this is after he's already built and lost fort necessity yes so like a lot has happened we in apes don't talk about the war itself but this is an important point because this is when washington becomes washington, washington. um But really, again, we don't talk about the war. In the end, the British wins the war. And you have to remember the British includes the colonists. The colonists are British at this time. So what that does is the Treaty of Paris of 1763 kicks the French out, but the Native Americans are staying. There's a really important thing to consider with the Native Americans in the fact that that treaty didn't really give them much, but it left them alone without that French protection. And they were pretty bitter about that. But also Native Americans are armed. This war-armed Native Americans, they are skilled with these weapons now, and that's something that the colonists are gonna have to face for a really long time. Um, This is gonna kind of take us forward when we get to the, um, really the skirmishes between the Frontiers people and the Native Americans. There's a lot of stuff happening at the same time. The end of the war, the Treaty of Paris of 1763, happens at the beginning of the year, and then we see a bunch of skirmishes between these Western frontier settlers, where, keep in mind, the West is like the Appalachian Mountains. where We haven't moved too far West yet. But we have Pontiac's Rebellion, which happens. You have Native Americans who are fighting back against these colonists. And then you also have these colonial vigilante groups like the Paxton Boys going in and causing a lot of trouble. But one of the biggest problems is going to be that these colonial governments are not protecting the settlers on the Western, Western frontier. They're basically being told, don't go cause trouble out there. We're not going to come out and save you. But they also don't have the British military there to save them anymore either. So, so that's- think about
0: like Bacon's
1: Rebellion and the issues with that. So Bacon, remember, he was in Western Pennsylvania. He was getting in all these fights with the Native Americans, and he went and asked that the House of Burgesses, which was the colonial legislature in Virginia, for help. And the Virginia governor said, no, we warned you not to go there. And the rebellion happens, and it's just no good. So really, the result of all this is going to be the British issuing the proclamation line of 1763, which draws that line down the Appalachian Mountains and says, you may not go there. Past the Appalachian Mountains. But the problem with this is that the Treaty of Paris gives Americans that land. And when I say Americans, I really mean the British, because they were British. But the American colonists were given this land per the treaty, and they're bothered. Why are you telling us that we can't go into this land that we fought to earn? Because it was the colonists who were fighting in this war. They earned that land for themselves, and they want to have it. So this is going to be the beginning of a constant theme surrounding salutary neglect this idea that for 150 years, the colonists had lived in this world where they were practically ignored by the British crown. There were general guidelines to follow, but the crown never, or parliament, never really kind of butt into their lives. As long as they were supplying raw materials per mercantilism, always good. But now all of a sudden, the king and parliament are telling the colonists what to do. We kind of transition into this idea of parliamentary sovereignty, and the colonists are not going to handle this really well.
0: Um, so coming out of the war,
1: um, we know the colonists don't handle it well, but neither do the
0: British. So the British have fought this war. Um, they really do it to protect their interests, to protect the power in the British name, that they are this great military and they're better than everyone else, especially France. Um... But the result of this war really is that the British is faced with this enormous debt from fighting this war, right? We know that this is part of the Seven Years' War, which is kind of a fallout of, again, the second Hundred Years' War. Um, and after, you know, centuries of fighting and wars, the British are broke. Um, so part of this money is going to be raised through the colonists to repay this war debt that they did to protect the colonies. So we're going to see a couple important acts here at this time. We see the Revenue Act. The currency act and the navigation act so with the revenue act this really tries to enforce some of those taxes um the goal really of the revenue act is to stop the colonists from either smuggling or bribing those tax collectors they had been bribing tax collectors for so long to get around the previous navigation acts that they really needed that revenue with the currency act it eliminates paper currency and really forces them to only use the british currency um, and no other currencies. So of course, Great Britain is making all that money. And then we'll see the introduction of the navigation acts, which we'll talk about in just a little bit with really raising all of these taxes to make money. Another really important thing to think about at this time is that all these British troops that come over really the officers to lead the battles during the French and Indian war. But at the end of the war, these troops end up staying, especially on the frontier, um, not to protect the colonists from the French and the natives, but to stop the colonists from moving into that territory once they, you know, issue that proclamation of 1763. So even though the French and Indian War is over, the troops are already still there from British. So as tensions escalate, you know, it's not just the quartering act that sends troops over to live in the colonies. They're already there and they just never go home.
1: Okay, so um, there's a ton of acts of these British acts. You don't need to know all of them, but you do need to know the general order of how this evolves. So um, the first of the actual like acts that are outside of these larger acts, like the revenue and the currency acts are going to be the stamp act, which is basically you have to pay a tax on anything, any paper goods. One thing to remember about the stamp act is this does not affect everybody. This affects mostly your wealthy folks who can afford paper goods. Um, So the, reaction the colonial reaction to the british action is going to say no we're not going to do this this is ridiculous again remember these are your more wealthy people these are people who are very active in the their local town governments so they have it in their mind to decide to get together and work as a congress to send a repeal a request for a repeal um, and really, there's there's protests breaking out on the streets of Boston about this. Again, these are no, this is not everybody. These are small groups of people, but they're starting to be kind of the larger voice of the colonies. They're
0: also going to be in the older colonies, like Massachusetts and
1: Virginia, versus
0: places like Georgia and South Carolina, which are somewhat newer.
1: And also still heavily reliant on the British for their economic reasons. Um, so the British do um, respect the... Uh, request for repeal, and they do repeal it, but they replace it with the later Townsend Acts, um, which we'll get to in just a second. But with now the Stamp Act, and we see the Stamp Act Congress getting together, we start to see other groups form together too. The most obvious is going to be the Sons of Liberty, which is led by Sam Adams, who is a very different Adams than his cousin John. John was a man of the law. He was a lawyer. He was going to make sure that all things were done through the law, whereas Sam was a rabble rouser. He wanted to Kind of make trouble. Um, and the we also have the Daughters of Liberty. Um, so there's these groups that are starting to cause some trouble. And because of this, Britain begins to tighten control because of the resistance that's forming. And this is not uh, something that John Adams wants to be seeing. He would rather kind of prove to the British that we are lawful people, and that he wants to make sure that um, we can show that we are legitimate, and we can do this the right way. Whereas Sam Adams is like, no, we're gonna kind of hit them where it hurts, but unfortunately the British are gonna come in and move some more troops in to deal with the resistance. So what we really have is this series
0: of British action followed by colonial reaction where the British are tightening the reins. They're doing these acts to get this war revenue raised, um, but facing consistent colonial resistance because they've lived so long under salutary neglect that they feel like these things aren't
1: necessary. And another thing to consider is this war debt. Uh, the colonists don't necessarily think that they should be paying the war debt, whereas the British are like, well, yeah, we fought this war for you so you could get this land. And the colonists are like, yeah, the land that you won't let us go because of the proclamation line. So no, we're not going to pay this debt. And you have to think too, with that sentiment of no taxation without
0: representation, because these colonies had colonial assemblies of their own they really felt represented within their own colony so that's also going to play a huge part of that resistance in the sense that they felt if we are having our own colonial assemblies and we're allowed to micromanage ourselves here why are we paying a tax across the sea that we don't get a say in so when we look at the acts um the first major one is going to be the sugar act of 1764 this is going to be beginning of these navigation acts it's important to understand this is not the first sugar act i think actually it's the third um but again only by our sugar will decrease the price of our sugar so you buy it from us instead of other people but it forces you to buy british sugar and not french um or spanish we have a lot of you know illegal sugar smuggling coming out of the caribbean islands um so it's trying to avoid that um following the sugar act in 1764 we see the stamp act in 1765 which is repealed we know um When we talk about that colonial resistance think about how they were tarring and feathering the tax collectors we have the stamp Act congress um you know all of these ways that they are protesting this they do end up repealing it but in 1766 in the following year we'll see the british pass the
1: declaratory act uh, where they essentially say you know we lay down the law and the 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 act itself doesn't do anything if you look at the root word it's declare that's literally all it does it just declares we are in charge And even though it's not actually doing anything, the colonists aren't paying a tax. They're not doing anything that really hurts the colonists. They're like, no, you are not in charge here. Um, But in 1767, the Stamp Act is going to be replaced really with the Townsend Acts, which is not just stamp or just paper products in general. It's going to be ink. It's going to be um, lead, other things that are incredibly needed and useful. Glass, all sorts of things. Um, And we'll start to see kind of a, a, a local resistance in terms of these colonists kind of creating their own economy by creating these things in other methods. Um, So we're starting to see the colonists start to talk and they're gonna start to uh, figure out how can they work together to avoid this. Fast forward a little bit to 1770, we have the Boston Massacre, this happens in March. And the Boston Massacre is one of those events that who knows what will ever happen. All we have are the records from the uh, courts um, in which the British soldiers who fired on a couple of Um, Boston locals, um, were basically brought to court and John Adams was their defending lawyer, which so many Bostonians were like, bro, how could you do this to us? And he's like, my goal is to get them found not guilty and to prove to the King and Parliament that we are lawful people. Again, it's not Sam Adams. Sam Adams was disgusted with his cousin and he does in fact get them found not guilty, which does give a little bit of time to the colonists and a little, relieves a little bit of pressure, um, but it won't last for long.
0: Um, in 1773, we are going to see the passage of the tea act. So again, um, kind of like the sugar act. If we change the prices of British tea, then people buy British tea and they won't be buying French tea or any other tea and they have to get their things from Britain. And we know that goes over so well, especially always Massachusetts
1: and Sam Adams So Sam Adams gets the sons of Liberty together. They dress up like a bunch of Mohawk native Americans because nobody will know who is doing this. They get onto one of these, uh, British tea ships and they throw all of the tea into the Boston Harbor, creating the largest tea party in the world. And this is something that the Crown does not find funny. Um, And neither does John Adams, quite frankly. He's like, this is the craziest thing you've ever done. Why could you do this? We also see John Hancock be introduced here. He was a tea smuggler. And so the result of this is going to be the uh, Committees of Correspondence, which is going to be really the first time since the Albany Congress that um, the colonies are getting together to start talking about like, what do we actually do about this outside of our individual colonies? And this goes hand in hand with the British response to the Tea Party, which is gonna be the Intolerable Acts. According to the British, they called it the Coercive Acts, but here in the colonies, they called them the Intolerable Acts because they were very intolerable, but they were focused towards punishing Boston. What they did, there were four parts, closing Boston Harbor, They closed down the government of Boston, which was town hall setting. They basically, um, in the Administration of Justice Act, um, anybody who was arrested for breaking any laws in Boston were tried in England, not here at home with a jury of their peers, which really hurt. Um, But also it's the other quartering act. This is the quartering act that we think of more, you know, when we talk about the Third Amendment is based off this quartering act, where now we have British troops who are living among us in Boston. And this is painful. So the reaction to this is where things start moving very quickly. Um,
0: so it's important to understand all of this happens as a direct result of the Boston Tea Party and it's only to Massachusetts, but this is where we genuinely see that colonial unity and the fact that like, Oh crap, if they do it to Massachusetts, they can do it to us. So we're going to see Virginia respond, South Carolina respond. We're seeing these other places that had been further removed from some of this stuff and the drama of what's happening up North. Um, They really start to come together. So this is when we see the meeting of the First Continental Congress. Um, And during this, what they really do is develop that initial petition to the king, that list of grievances where they're like, look, bro, this isn't cool. No taxation without representation. We got some issues. And the king shuts it down and is like, sit down, close your mouth,
1: right? Children are to be seen, not heard. Um, So meanwhile, in Boston... There's some trouble brewing in terms of the military. Um, the King knows that the because of the First Continental Congress that the colonies are starting to be not trusted. Um, so the British military decides that they're gonna come and look for weapons to take away from an arsenal that is held in Boston. But a couple of folks have heard about this, uh, folks you know, like Paul Revere, uh, but also William Dawes, a couple of other people, and they basically are being are sending, they're, they're running to places like Lexington and Concord to tell them that the British are coming. And what are they coming for? They're coming to take our weapons. So go get your weapons and be prepared. And this is an unofficial first shot of the war. Nobody is killed. Um, but to the British, this makes it seem like the colonists are ready to fight. But to the colonists, this makes it seem like the British are bringing on war. And there's no turning back at this point.
0: Um, so after lasting to conquer, that leads to the second Continental Congress um, a month later in 1775 of May. Um, so out of the second Continental Congress, we have two things that are born out of this, and it's really ironic because they're polar opposites. Um, we have John Dickinson and his Olive Branch petition of like, oh, king, we're really sorry this happened. Maybe we can still be friends and figure something out, um, which of course the king doesn't get till after he receives the second outcome of the Second Continental Congress, which is the Declaration of Independence, our ultimate Breakup letter. Too late to apologize. We are done. Thomas we are Jefferson. To you. Oh,
1: yes. Um,
0: so the Declaration of Independence seals the deal. And then we have the American Revolution. Um, so ultimately, when we look at the causes and effects of the French-Indian and War, causes, it's really that spillover of European drama, um, of that power struggle between, you know, Great Britain and France. But you have to think, too, that the power struggle had been going on between European nations for hundreds of years. Um, and this is just a continuation of that. Um, and effect-wise, we really see the power struggle shift from Britain and France to British and their colonies um, and kind of who's going to rule over where should the power and control be. Um, so we're going to change gears a little bit um, and really look at kind of some other aspects during this time, not just related to the French Indian War, even the Revolution. But when we look at this time period, 754 to 1800, some kind of overall themes going on. Um, So we're going to start with kind of cultural and social
1: changes during this time So going backwards into the 1750s with that Albany Plan of Union This was Benjamin Franklin's attempt to get colonies to come together to think about what they could do To stop the Native American threat and this is join or die and this is the first instance of Anybody trying to get an intercolonial thing going and he fails Because not everybody joins they don't see it that way in particular Virginia Virginia is Virginia Um, Boston, you know, your older colonies who have been around for 150 years, they've been doing it there on their own. They don't need these other colonies. And think about how different Boston and New York are from Virginia. So that didn't really go over well. Uh, we start to see kind of a struggle within the colonies in these identities, but what they're all feeling, no matter who they are, is they're starting to form these ideas of self-governance. Remember, the Pilgrims came over with the Mayflower Compact, which is the first legitimate self-governing document but the um, in New England you see your your town halls which are are meetings of the church the church is central in those ideas whereas down in Virginia you have the House of Burgesses which is a representative government um, it looks very different than that of New England but at the same time they ha- are forming these self governing bodies that determine their autonomy dealing with these larger issues that they're having. So while the governments are looking different, they serve the same purpose.
0: Um, some other things we see developing this time is a distinct colonial culture that really separates the colonial, you know, British, the colonial Americans from the actual British. Um, we're to the point now where they've been in the colonies so long that while we do still have people migrating, we really have first and second generation Americans that were born on colonial soil. Um, so that is going to change things. We see colonial architecture develop right now when We think about colonial homes or the big white houses with the huge white columns You know houses specific architecture meant that is built out of the materials that are already found in America um, We see colonial literature things like Thomas Paine's common sense where it's distinctly American um, Which is ironic because Thomas Paine wasn't actually American. He was British <laughs> um, But common sense is that first real piece of American literature that's going to bring people together um, We also have to remember that you know um, the first good awakening happens during this time period. So the Baptists and the Methodists, we see new forms of church developing. Um, and while religion doesn't really have anything to do with it, the fact that these religions are their own religions and they're not tried to tied to the Anglican Church, the Church of England, now you really see this idea. We don't call it separation of church and state yet, but that's what it is. We are no longer... Um, not even just politically tied to Great Britain during this time, but we're no longer religiously tied to the king It's just another thing to we
1: can function and think for ourselves and be okay and really separate from england And these religions are also recognizing differences within each other Which is an important thing to consider with the colonies the colonies are very different from each other The northern colonies are very different than the southern colonies and that really hinders their connection for a really long time You know, it takes Um, larger issues with the crown to kind of come together and create this American idea versus these individual colonial ideas, which is still not going to be solved, as we'll see with the Articles Confederation. We also see an extension of the Enlightenment here in America. Um, While the Enlightenment was taking place in Europe, we think about people like um, you know John Locke and Montesquieu. Um, these are these Enlightenment thinkers. Sure, of course, are influencing Thomas Jefferson and writing the Declaration of Independence. But even before that. We really consider our American Enlightenment person to be Ben Franklin. Ben Franklin is significantly older than George Washington and John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. He's been around for a while. He's living in Philadelphia. He is a scientist, he's a philosopher, he's a writer, he's doing all sorts of things. I mean, he's written so many things. He has the Farmer's Almanac, he has a great book called Fart Proudly with really interesting little snippets about life. Um, And he's just thinking differently outside of the box. You don't need religion to tell you what to think, which is that general idea of the enlightenment, right? We are humans with brains and autonomy. We can believe what we believe because of science. So he is bringing that here in America as well. Another distinct
0: American cultural feature is going to be this frontier culture. Um, I think we talk about it more obviously when we talk about the Turner frontier thesis, you know, after Manifest Destiny, But the Americans are moving into this unsettled territory, or at least to them unsettled because, you know, Native Americans. Um, But they're coming into these frontier societies. They're dealing with these Native Americans that have never been dealt with before. The Europeans don't understand that. They're clearing the land. Europe had been established for thousands of years. Everything is settled and old and established in Europe. Whereas in America, it's literally the frontier and it's the unknown. So we're talking about the frontier being the Appalachian Mountains. Like, we could drive there and be there in an hour and a half. Like, that is the frontier to them. Everything is the unknown. So it's this constant feeling of we have to overcome things that you don't have to overcome. We understand things you don't understand. It's a lot more difficult to build. Think about the struggles of Jamestown. We know that we've come a long way from, you know the starving time and all these things from Jamestown. But the idea that we have these struggles that no one else understands because Europe is not like that. That's really going to bond the American people and kind of help them understand that they are different from the British, right? They're not worried about tea time. They're worried about getting scalped.
1: One of the things that a lot of people don't consider during this time period is the role of women. Um, Of course, women are still living these very traditional lives. Uh, Most of these large figures we talk about are men, but women are responsible for a really important aspect of the American culture. And it's this idea of Republican motherhood, that it is the job of women to instill the sense of this new republic and the ideals of democracy, even before America even knows this is really a thing, but these ideas of freedom and independence. And again, this is before the independence movement. It's just the idea that we are a distinct autonomous nation that is different than Europe. We're not Europe. They're instilling these ideas into their children, and these are going to be those, the, that revolutionary generation. So when we think of the Adams and the Jeffersons and the Monroes, the, you know, their, their mothers instilled these ideas into them, whereas the generation before, they were European. You know, So we are starting to see a, a true American generation that's existing.
0: In kind of coming out of that idea of Republican motherhood, when we talk about all the boycotts that happened during that revolutionary period, or even pre-revolution, when we're really looking at, you know, the Sons of Liberty and the Committees of Correspondence, um, that's really the Committees of Correspondence is where the boycotts were born out of. Um, if you're going to boycott British goods, where are you going to get goods? That's really what turns the Americans to even start developing their own economy or their own anything. We see them, you know, they can't just buy furniture from Britain because they're boycotting them. They have to make furniture. They can't buy clothing. Women, they're, you know... So in clothing, we really see the American people have to come together and really start to not manufacture because, you know, they're only factories, but they're developing and they're creating because they're trying to become self-reliant. So that idea of, you know, we're going to fix this and we're going to figure it out. Innovation um, is really kind of stemming out of here. Another thing too, obviously, is the culture of slavery. We know that this is really when slavery is taking off. Um, we know after Bacon's Rebellion, we really see the shift away from indentured servitude, So kind of that economic foundation and reliance on slavery is going to be a huge cultural aspect during this time because we know even at the time of the Declaration of Independence, further with the Constitution, you know, they don't want to touch that topic with a 10-foot pole, Um, but that's also something that distinctly separates, especially the Southern colonies away from britain is the fact that they don't have the system of serfdom the indentured servitude system kind of falls by the wayside so that economic reliance on slavery and kind of it being the topic you know the elephant in the room we're not going to talk about a peculiar
1: institution
0: yes um that kind of distinctly separates it again from the british you have all of these things that culturally and socially just make these americans feel less and less european and less and less british
1: Okay, so now I'm going to talk specifically about politics and keep in mind, I'm doing an entirely separate screencast lecture on politics, so I'm not going to get entirely too specific on certain things, Um, but I'm going to kind of just briefly overview the politics of this entire era because realistically 1754 to 1800, uh, there's a lot of changes. So um if we are basically stemming from period 2 again those colonial governments we go from having individual um colonial governments that turn into one with the Second Continental Congress. Um, if you've seen any movies about, or shows about the um, Second Continental Congress and you see all of the debates that are, that are happening inside of Independence Hall, these colonies are not in agreement on everything. On most things they will argue on, but there is one thing that they do agree on and that that is Britain is doing them dirty. So um, these colonial governments are starting to shift into one larger American government. And I think that a really great quote um, by Patrick Henry really shows this is, I am not a Virginian, I am an American. Um, Virginians, in particular, loved being Virginians. Um, And that was really huge to hear somebody like Patrick Henry from Virginia say, it's not about our individual colonies, we are one America, and now it's time to move forward like that. So that's really the beginning of an American political unit. Um, A a really uh, unique feature of our government, I'm fast forwarding now to the creation of our government, is the fact that The American government is based off of a representative democracy um, or you might have heard of it as a democratic republic, it's the same thing. Um, it's important to know that a democratic republic has nothing to do with democrats and republicans because you're good APUSH students and you know that the democrats don't become a political party till the 1830s and the republicans don't become a political party till the 1850s. So this, these ideas of democratic republic stems from ancient Greece and ancient Rome. A pure democracy in Athens was that every single citizen, and when I say citizen that really just meant wealthy white men. Um, with land. With land And slaves could vote Um, but a republic like in Rome is that people elected representatives to make those decisions for them and our founders were very very clear in their intentions when coming up with these new ideas for our um, government and we start to see these ideas in the articles of confederation but they're really solidified during the constitutional convention in a democratic republic There are some instances that the people do get to make decisions. There's that idea idea of popular sovereignty, right? But our founders were really, really clear that they did not trust the masses and the uneducated people to be making good decisions for the country. And please keep in mind that so many people would not have been educated during this time. Yes, it is such a small group. And yes, it is a small group of wealthy white men. You know the the, that's it's very apparent that was the case but their fear was that they the the mobs of uneducated people would turn this something that we fought so hard for into mush it just wouldn't work in the end so that's where the republic comes in that we have a representative democracy in which we choose electors to make the, or I'm sorry, we choose representatives to make these decisions for us. Yes, the Electoral College is part of that, but we can talk about that next year in government. Um, so the Democratic Republic ideal is really unique to America. Nobody else had something like this at the time, and this is going to be the beginning of that revolutionary era, so this is truly an American idea at the time. Um, I'm going to kind of uh, rewind a little bit into 1777 after the Declaration of Independence this was obviously not the end of the war. The Treaty of Paris had not been signed yet, but America says, well, we're American, we're free. We know this war is going to either go one or two ways. We're going to lose and we're still going to be British or we're going to win and we're not going to be, but we should pr- probably have something um, planned out in case we do. win." so they come up with the idea of the Articles of Confederation. we know that this is a massive failure because we don't have it today. But one of the biggest issues that many, not all, but many of the colonists um well, those who were building the, the um, government had, was that the fear of a strong central government or a monarch in that case. They wanted to make sure that there was nothing that replicated what they were coming from with England. So the idea behind the Articles of Confederation was a very small, very weak central government that just consisted of one legislature and the states had the majority of the power. Um, but the problem with this is that the central government could not levy taxes. Therefore, they could not pay for a military um, there was a lot of things that they couldn't do and the states had all of the powers. But what they quickly found out through Shea's Rebellion, for example, is that there was no central power to regulate any issues that were going on between the colonies. And there's lots of things. You had different colonies having different types of currency. So how are you supposed to regulate an economy or have an economy when you have 13 different currencies? Um, there were a lot of issues with the Articles of Confederation. Um, And Shays Rebellion truly showed everybody, you know what, this isn't working. We need to call together a Constitutional Convention. We have a whole bunch of our familiar friends who are gonna be there, including Alexander Hamilton, who showed his worth to George Washington in the war. And we have a lot of really different ideas. And the Constitutional Convention is contentious. We see lots of different compromises happening i'm not going to get too deep into them but basically we know that these 13 now states have very very different ideas of what this government should look like so the convention happened 1787 we finally ratify the constitution in 1788 however that is not the end because we know the federalists and the anti-federalists are going to disagree about it and the result of that is going to be the ratification of the bill of rights in 1789 and we're finally good right? But it takes a couple of years for this thing to get into power or into play. And we see our first election in 1792 uh, with Washington, no, 1788. And then again, his reelection in 1792. Um, But really, this is, I'm not going to go too much into this. We've really talked about this like crazy in class, but Washington sets a million precedents, including what this government is going to look like. What power does the executive branch have? Because there's nobody ever to have ever made any example of this, nobody knows. We're also during these, this first president, these first really four presidents, we're seeing what these principles of the constitution that were built, what does it look like? Okay, the ideas of separation of powers and checks and balances, the idea of limited government, meaning that the government is limited. They, the power of the government is derived from the people. It's not a government in charge of the people. It's to answer to the people. Unless it's the Whiskey Rebellion. Or the Whiskey Rebellion, which George Washington came in and made it very clear. He was in charge and everybody was cool with that. Nobody fought that one. Federal power supersedes state power. Absolutely. Supremacy clause, baby. The rule of law, right? The government is not above the law. Uh, and this idea of republicanism, what does it look like when we are electing these people to make decisions for us? And how does that change over time? We see, we'll see, we see with period four a lot of changes with that, with universal male suffrage, um, etc. And then the idea of popular sovereignty, right? The people get to decide what they want through republicanism. Um, so again, as Washington is president by 1796, he steps down and says, "You know what? This isn't my jam anymore. I've been doing this since I was 21 years old. I'm finally going to go to Mount Vernon and chill out." And John Adams gets elected, and we'll talk more about that when we get to that. Um, I don't think
0: we are going to talk more about John. Well, in my
1: political thing.
0: Got it. Okay. I do. Um, all right. So looking at economic shifts again, 1754 to 1800, we're really seeing the colonies developed on that system of mercantilism. Um, Really, the British are trying to harness all these raw materials from the American colonies just like they did their other colonies to bring back to manufacturing to produce these finished goods that are a product of that first industrial revolution. Um, Obviously, as we get into the boycotts and resisting all the taxes and the acts, the British are not going to have our raw materials because we said no thank you. Um, But during those boycotts, kind of how we talked about earlier, it's really important that the American colonists are trying to develop this economic independence where they're trying to develop their own kind of, you know, initial not industry, we're still not factories yet, but um kind of early manufacturing of our own finished goods, trying to be self-sufficient and not rely on the British economy. Um it's going to be several years after the French and Indian War where we finally reach or not the French and Indian War. Several years after the American Revolution where the colonists finally reach a point where they're ready to trade with Britain and France and other countries. But during that time, they really are trying to be self-sufficient and make all these things for themselves for the first time. Um, Post-American um, Revolution, you know, kind of this new America, um, we see the first kind of push towards taxes. The big one, obviously, is the whiskey, um, the whiskey tax because they realize that to run a country, you need money. And to get money, you have to have taxes. So even though they fought against the British taxes, um, they were like, oh, crap, we need that. We now I get it. And
1: people are going to drink their whiskey. They're going to pay their tax on their whiskey. Let's do it.
0: Um, so with that, we really kind of see the idea that, like, we do have to have taxes. Obviously, we know that's the big thing that leads to the failures with the Articles of Confederation and not only the lack of, you know, being able to collect that revenue, but also to enforce the laws. Um, and then, you know, post-Constitution, what we really see economically is that development of Hamilton's financial plan, Um, How are we going to solve this debt issue, pay back the war debts, but really establish and create an economy for this new country, um, which is going to be really important. And we know that that will later on lead to Henry Clay's economic system as well. Um, So really just important to understand these major, major changes. And we know that it stems from the French and Indian War, which is really why we started 1754. And those changes go through until we hit 1800 with the election of Jefferson. And that's really the transition into period four.
1: So we'll do another one of these for period four. Hopefully this was helpful for you guys. Um, But I think otherwise that's it.
0: Also, I'm really impressed that Ms. Bacon and I kept this down to less than 40 minutes. And we talked about the revolution, the French Indian War, politics, economics, Hamilton, and Henry Clay and George Washington. I hope you know how hard
1: that was. It
0: was really hard. All right, guys, we will return with period four.
1: Hi. Welcome to A Push with Thunder Under Bacon. Bacon. So here's a, a little funny story for you guys. We just tried to record this um, at my house upstairs and our husbands were downstairs with the kids. Um, and we thought that maybe we could get 15 minutes to be able to record, but not even 12 minutes. And here come the kids busting through the door. So we had to re-record.
0: So here we are again, take two, um, for the period four, uh, review podcast sitting in the trunk of my car. Yeah. We are hiding from husbands and children and dogs because this is where we're at. Um, so period four is 1800 to 1848. And as we go through this, please keep in mind, this is not by any means all of period four. These are simply the things that you guys requested in the survey that we go over, um, so
1: i 'm going to let Miss Bacon start and talk about some weird political stuff, and you know all right, what. so where we left off with period three, we were just at the very beginning of our new republic, um, and just as all new things as time goes on, you learn things about that. Thing And it changes because America is changing. So our government is changing. Okay, our political parties are changing our ideas of democracy is changing and It's important to remember that democracy is not just the type of government that America has But it's also what it looks like. It's the participation of people in the government so up until the 1820s and 1830s only Wealthy land-owning white men could vote and participate in the government, but that's going to change and this is the beginning of the Democratic Party with Andrew Jackson. He gets elected due to universal male suffrage, which removes the uh, land ownership requirement in voting. So we have a whole new group of people voting with very different needs and very different wants and different ideas about what their government should be doing for them. And that's really going to shift a lot of stuff. And I'm going to talk a lot about more of that in the um, screencast that I'm doing about all of the political systems, but that is a massive shift in the development of our country. Um, The political parties, they are also changing. Um, When we started, we had the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans. The Federalists are going to go away after John Adams um, and, you know, Alexander Hamilton and John Marshall, those guys, they're all gone. And then the Democratic Republicans are going to have control of the entire government for quite a while. But by the end of the Democratic Republican control, they didn't even look like the Democratic Republicans of Thomas Jefferson's time because things are changing. So by the time Andrew Jackson is um, president as the first Democratic president, we have the creation of a new political party and the Democratic Republicans don't really have much of a platform anymore. And so another new political party is going to form, which their entire platform is basically anti-Andrew Jackson, and that's going to be the Whigs. So our new common man's president—I'm sorry, common man's uh, political party—is going to be the Democrats versus the Whigs, who, led by Henry Clay, don't have much of a platform, which is why they can't sustain for very long. But I'm not going to go too much into that because that's a whole other screencast. Um, we are also seeing the development of distinct cultural groups in America. Many of these are created due to the changing. Um, regional differences in the North and the South. In the North, we have a lot of immigrants coming in. We have a a huge influx of Irish and Germans. The Germans are moving into Wisconsin, Minnesota, Illinois area, which then is the West. Today, we consider it the Midwest. Um, And the Irish are staying largely in New York and uh, Boston and they're working in the factories um, and they're creating a very different culture. They're bringing in their own cultural ideas and maintaining those here in America, even though there were political parties made because we're very anti-immigrant. These cultures are gonna exist. We're gonna start to see cities. If you remember the urban game, um, the cities are really gonna start um, having these ethnic pockets. And even though that's later in the 1800s, it's gonna start now with the Irish and the Germans. Um, In the South, we have a very growing slave population. Slavery is not slowing down by any means, um, but also a growing slave uh, culture. The African-American culture in the South is mixed with a lot of the African roots, as well as Christian roots in which many of them were raised. Um, And it's creating a really distinct culture in the South. And as we start to move West, these cultures are going to move with everybody. Then we're going to jump into some of the reform movements, these big changes happening because they can. Um, When I talk about reform movements, I'm talking about abolition, temperance, women, but none of these could have happened without the second great awakening. And we've already had a first great awakening and the causes of the second great awakening are causes due to the very changing country that we have, right, we have a lot of um, free thinking going on and that change with universal male suffrage. Our government is looking different. People are thinking differently. Uh, we also have women's roles are changing drastically with the market revolution and the factory system, which Ms. Thunderbrook will talk about, um, the development of cities and what that factory system looks like. People are living different lives than they were living 30 years ago. Um, so we're going to see another second great awakening, which is going to really support these reform movements that really need to be um, Supported because it's not gonna happen in the government. So we have abolition uh, abolition is not going to be successful right now This is gonna be led by William Lloyd Garrison and Frederick Douglass, but this is gonna be the beginning of it um, We have the temperance movement, which is gonna be led mostly by women. Remember women don't have a voice politically They cannot vote. So this is their opportunity to get their voice and their ideas out there and to try and influence men to vote on legislation that affects these so temperance is definitely uh, bolstered and backed up by the uh women who strongly believe in it um speaking of women women are you know trying to get their own suffrage as well we have the seneca falls um uh Convention, convention that's the word, where they write the Declaration of Rights and Sentiments, which totally mirrors Thomas Jefferson's Declaration of Independence. Um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton is really the person who heads this up. Um, We also know that this is not going to be successful because women are not going to get suffrage until 1919. Um, We also have the education movement, which is just the beginning of a very long movement. As we now have more people in terms of population, uh, the conversation about education and creating a very... Um, well-educated population of Americans is happening. And Horace Mann is going to be the person who's heading this up. We have a couple of other folks as well, but he's really the guy who's in charge. Um, And we start to come up with some ideas about compulsory education, which means mandatory education. But not everybody's going to have the opportunity to just be able to go to school. There's many kids in cities who have to work at factories to help their families. You have many uh, kids who live on farms out west that they're nowhere near a school So they can't be getting to a school really it's going to be your uh, wealthy white children who don't have other jobs are now going to start becoming required to go to school but that's going to also develop over the next hundred years and we also have the utopian society so the shakers and oneida and brooks farm these communal experiments were that exactly they were experiments they did not last very long And, I mean, think about it, the Shakers, they did not allow uh, reproduction. So how could you continue your community if you can't have more people? They relied on kind of just bringing more people in um, and converting them, but that just didn't last very long. Um, We also have some changes in religions. The Mormon religion is now... A truly American religion, and this goes out with, or this also falls along with the moving out west aspect, right? The Mormons are moving out to Utah on the Mormon Trail to escape persecution, um, and this is all as an effect of the Second Great Awakening. Um, so, this second, uh, or, or this early reform movement is able to happen because of the Second Great Awakening, but very few of them have actual successes yet. We'll see abolition have success in the 1860s, and temperance, well, I don't know if there's ever really success. Prohibition was an attempt, but that didn't really work. Was it was <laughs> not success. <laughs> uh, women, not until, you know, 1919. Education's going to be during the Progressive Era. So there is definitely a lot, of, um, a lot that still needs to happen, but now we're just in the beginning of, this, of these movements. Um, So looking at the market revolution and really the economic impact, even the
0: social impact, a couple major things come out of this. The first, obviously, is the transportation network. This is, you know, with the development of James Watt's steam power and steam engine, we evolve into the railroads. We get the steamboat. The railroads are going to really change everything because now you have a way to get people from one place to another you have a way to get goods from one place to another you know we have more than just you know your two legs or a horse we can actually move things big things from place to place and this is going to completely change the american economy um a couple important inventions and this is by no means all of the inventions of the market revolution and before i even get into inventions let me just say the market revolution is not the industrial revolution the market revolution is part of the second industrial revolution The second industrial revolution is the inventions. The market revolution is the idea of how it changes the economy overall. Um, so looking at some of the really important inventions, obviously the telegraph, being able to communicate with someone and not wait for, you know, the Pony Express and snail mail to come, being able to get messages instantly across long distances. Think about once they finally get that transatlantic telegraph line in, that's going to be life changing, not even just for America, but for the globe, um, The sewing technology, right? This is where we get the sewing machine, the power loom. We're gonna start to see textile mills, um, ways to manufacture cloth It's really important. Right before this, everything has to be made by hand. So if you're sewing a shirt, you can't just take fabric and sew a shirt. You're having to actually weave the threads into a fabric to make a shirt. Um, So having all this technology is gonna revolutionize even clothing. Um, Eli Whitney's interchangeable parts here. We know he develops that um, to fix the problems with the revolvers, but because of that, that's gonna revolutionize the factory system as a whole. Um, we even have massive mechanization of agriculture at this time. We're going to see Eli Whitney's cotton gin, which completely revolutionizes cotton production. Um, we also know that that's going to reinvigorate slavery in the South because as they produce more and more cotton, they need more slaves to pick the cotton to be produced. On top of that, with the invention of the textile mills, the cotton gin is going to be key because now they're demanding more and more cotton from the South. Um, we're also going to see the mechanical reaper, um, the steel plow, right? We think about John Deere, um, all of these things as we're moving out west, the land is different. So even though we're going to see farming in that western territory, you know, our modern day Midwest, the land is not the same. The soil is not the same. There are new challenges farming towards the west. So all of these new inventions are going to mechanize and change farming, right? No m- longer just the plantation agriculture or subsistence farming, but widespread, you know, mass farming for things like wheat and corn um stuff like that uh, with the mechanization we obviously know that production is going to significantly increase which is going to demand more labor but it's also going to bring down uh, prices and this is going to start this early wave of what becomes consumerism. and we know we really don't see consumerism quite yet um, but this is what's going to kind of start that idea that we can mass produce things mass produce things for a cheaper price um, another big change coming out of the market revolution and this is what really sets it apart from just saying it's the second industrial revolution is the labor um, with the factory system, you need significantly more workers to run these factories. Um, but the benefit of that is that they are unskilled. so we have the shift from skilled to unskilled labor so before, if you wanted shoes, you would go to a cobbler if you wanted you know something for your horse or something metal, you would go to a, ba- a blacksmith um, instead of doing these or a tailor so all of these skilled artisans that had to have jobs if you wanted one of those, you had to apprentice so you had to learn those skills. Now we move into a period of unskilled labor where all you had to know was how to push one button on a machine to do one small part of this manufacturing process. Um, and because it was unskilled, it wasn't just, you know, skilled, privileged white men that are going to be able to get these jobs. We're going to see women in the factories. We're going to see children in the factories. We're going to see massive numbers of immigrants, especially the Irish, coming over to work in the factories in the Northeast. Um, and because it's unskilled labor and because it's women and children immigrants, you are able to pay a lower wage labor than you would have before, which helps support, you know, higher quantities of workers. The other thing to think about is as these other, you know, lower groups of people in society are taking these jobs, this frees up the white men for different types of job, which is really where we see the birth of the white collar workers. So doctors and lawyers at this time, even men would have probably been teachers. Um, Because the white men are the only ones that are allowed to get an education. So the the jobs and the time that are going to require education, only white men are privileged to that. So this pulls them out of the factory to where they can get that education and have those kind of skilled white collar jobs. Whereas the rest of society would not be allowed because it's either not allowed because they're uneducated or they're working in a factory.
1: The market revolution also has a major impact on politics and the government. Um, We'll talk a lot more about this in our next Period 5 podcast because it focuses on sectionalism. But really, as we are moving out west, the reason we move out west is because of the need for markets, the need for resources to kind of keep this um, market revolution going. Um, But as we move out west, there's so many questions that arise. And really, the number one question is, is is this land going to be... um, tolerable to slavery or not. So again, I'll talk about the more sectionalism piece um, in the next podcast that we do. Um, But the Mexican-American War uh, is smack in the middle of all of this. And the result of the war itself, based on the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, is that America gets an entire quarter of what we now know America as today, right? We have California, the Arizona Territory, Texas, all that good stuff. So um, the war. I'm not going to talk about the war itself, but the result of the war, we get all this territory. What do we do with it? We know that in 1849, we're going to have a lot of people going out west for um, gold. We have the cattle ranchers who are in the west. We have people who are going down the Santa Fe Trail and trading with people in Mexico. Um, It's really expanding our markets. So the government is going to have to figure out how to deal with all of this. And again, I'll go more into this next uh, period. But the big compromise we need to be talking about is the Missouri Compromise. In 1820, Missouri wants to come in as a state because, again, we're moving west, manifest destiny, and it wants to be a slave state. But the government cannot agree on that because it's not about the abolitionists versus the slave owners, it's about having power in Congress. And if we add another slave state at this point, the the slave-owning South will have more states represented in Congress than the non-slave-owning Northern states, and that does play a big role in what legislation is gonna get passed or not. So um, these compromises are going to be um, addressed in the next period, but this is all a direct result of that market revolution. And again, it's starting to create a new American culture, the frontier, as we start to move west. So we'll hit some of that stuff in the next period, um, but know that it is all connected.
0: And just a couple of things to really think about. If you think about that Manifest Destiny, John Gast painting, American Progress, you look at, you know, that depiction of, you know, angelic America bringing all this stuff to the west. When you look at the things actually depicted in that image, a lot of those are those market revolution items, right? The market revolution and what comes out of it really enables Manifest Destiny to be achieved. Um, and really, when you think back to the first industrial revolution in England, that's around the time of colonization in the sense that, you know, they're going into all of these colonies to harness these raw materials for manufacturing. So when we see the second industrial revolution, that's the United States moving out West, you know, we're essentially doing the
1: same thing. All right. So we will see you guys with period five. Welcome to a push with thunder Thunder Bacon.
0: bacon. Alright, guys, so we are picking up with period five. Um, and this one will be pretty short because you guys want to know about everything in period five except the Civil War. Um, so, starting with post Mexican American War, we know that the Mexican American War ends with the Treaty of Guadalupe Dago, which helps the U.S. to acquire all that new territory in the Western Territory. So, pretty much everything west of Texas over to California. And this is going to re emphasize sectionalism. So again, with the North, we really have that industrial Northeast. We know that they are against not slavery, but the expansion of slavery, Um, whereas the South is going to be heavily dependent upon slaves. And as we move further and further West into that territory, which is largely agricultural, the question becomes, do we allow slaves
1: in those territories or do we not? So piggybacking off of our last podcast, we were talking about uh, the Missouri Compromise of 1820. This is the compromise that really sets a precedent for all of the sectionalism compromises. And at some point it is going to get overturned in the 1850s. So when Missouri came in as a free state, the line of the 30s, I'm sorry, slave state, 3630 line was drawn. Um, And anything north of that line, when it was applying to become a state, would be a free state. There was no mention of what the South would be. Also, Maine is going to come in as a free state to even out Congress. Because at that point, there were 11 free states and 11 slave states. So, obviously, we have to keep representation in Congress equal. And that's going to be a constant throughout this time. Um, but so much is going to change after the Mexican-American War because we've gotten this huge land session that uh, we need to figure out what we're going to do with. Texas has been doing its thing for a while, right? We're not going to get into Texas, but Texas already has an idea. They're ready to be a slave state. Um, but what about New Mexico territory? What about Arizona territory? What about California? Um, so one of the first things that happens really during this um, entire war itself is David Wilmot um, from I believe he's from Massachusetts. I think he's from Massachusetts. Um, He comes in, he says, okay. Always from Massachusetts. Always from Massachusetts. It's it's usually like the other, when in doubt, guess, Henry. The
0: Massachusetts is like the real housewives of the states.
1: (laughs) Um, Drama. So he's basically saying, so what if we get all of this land? What do we do with it? And he proposes this anti-slavery bill in all of the land and it gets shot down real fast. So keep in mind that these northern states are not anti-slavery. They are anti-expansion of slavery and that includes Abraham Lincoln. Um, So that was 1846. Then in 1850, California is ready to become a state because in 1849, a whole lot of people fled over there for some gold. They got enough people. They're ready to become a state. But by 1850, so this is 30 years after the Missouri Compromise, we now have 22 free states and 22 slave states. And the question is the same thing. What do we do? Well, there's not really another state to come in and equal it out. We have the whole Oregon mess going on, which we're not even going to get into. So we got to make some other, converse, or make some other decisions. But the Compromise of 1850 just shows that we still have this question of slavery, and we've, already, we've made it to the Pacific at this point. So this is brewing. It's not going away anytime soon. Um, the results of this, though, are going to be felt through a couple of places in the middle of America. In 1857, we have the Dred Scott case. Remember, Dred Scott was a slave um, in Missouri. And he and his owner moved up to Wisconsin, where he became a free man, but stayed with his owner because he owned nothing. And he was close with his owner and his owner dies. And so his owner's widow goes back to Missouri and she doesn't really have any thoughts on him being free or not. However, the state is a slave state. So he sues for his freedom and it it goes all the way up to the Supreme Court. Not organically, the help of some abolitionist lawyers that yes, there are abolitionists who exist. Um, uh, bring it up to the chief justice, Roger Taney, who is a slave owner from Maryland. So the result of this is not even whether he's free or not, doesn't even get that far. He gets shut down because, uh, Roger Taney says that he cannot even sue the courts because he's African-American and that starts to get some people's blood boiling. Um, and I didn't even mention what happened before this because I went out of order, but we also had the Kansas-Nebraska Act in 1854. Um, so this is when Kansas and Nebraska both wanted to apply to become states, but they um, once again couldn't figure out the who's going to be free, who's going to be slave. And so Stephen A. Douglas had this genius idea for why don't we let them decide? This is called popular sovereignty. And while it seemed like a really great idea at the time, what he did not expect was a bunch of abolitionists from the north flooding into Kansas and then slave owners from the south flooding from Missouri into Kansas and we have bleeding Kansas, which actually lasts about six years. Um, So the kansas nebraska Act and the idea of popular sovereignty 100% overturns the Missouri Compromise. That whole precedent is now gone. The idea of popular sovereignty exists and now we just know this is gonna be crazy. Um, Again, I talk about this more in the um, political um, lecture, but this is gonna be the beginning of the Republican Party. Um, So all of this power struggle that's going on in Congress It's all the way back to the creation of the Constitution and the Three-Fifths Compromise. It's all about power. Whoever has more representation in Congress is going to have more power and get more legislation passed that helps and benefits them. Shocking to nobody, this is going to lead directly to war. Um, We're going to skip over the war which is crazy, and move to Reconstruction because that's what you guys wanted to talk about. Reconstruction is an absolutely insane, radical time period of so much crazy stuff going on, just simply because the South, having left the United States, the majority of the people in the South were Democrats. So as they leave the South, I'm sorry, as they leave the United States, the majority of the United States is made up of Republicans, which is a brand new political party at this time. So Lincoln, prior to the end of the war, knows that he has to have some sort of a plan in place prior to the war ending. And after Gettysburg, he's feeling pretty good about this. So his initial reconstruction plan is going to be the 10% plan. And it's a plan of leniency. He wants this to be over. He wants to get past all of this. And he wants to kind of redirect the country into a new, um, just getting back to where we were before all of this, which isn't great. Right? How do you move on from this? Um, but he says if we're lenient about this, it'll be a lot easier to do so. Um, so his plan essentially offered a, par- a pardon to any Confederate supporters, which was super lenient, right? The radical Republicans in Congress, uh, led by Thaddeus Stevens, thought that that was absolute insanity. They're like, no, we need to absolutely punish the South. We cannot let them get away with this. Lincoln was like, no, we need to move past this. Um, he also said that the Southern states could re joined the Union when 10% of the men eligible to vote in 1860 basically swear an oath of allegiance to the United States and not the Confederacy. I promise
0: we won't be treasonous ever again.
1: Never. We will never do this again. But think about 10%, right? Out of, you know, 100 people, that's 10 dudes, right? That's, it's fairly easy to do. Um, It did say that the state constitutions had to outlaw slavery, which was a whole fight against federalism. So there were a lot of Southern states who were not about that, right, states' rights. Um, But what it didn't do was offer any kind of protection for African Americans. That was something that he was like, you know what, we'll take care of that when we get to it. Now, that doesn't mean nothing is happening, right? The 13th Amendment is passed, um, which abolishes slavery. Um, But something happens to Lincoln to kind of stop this entire thing in that he is assassinated. So... Andrew Johnson becomes the president, and Andrew Johnson is not Abraham Lincoln in so many ways. He was not Lincoln's original uh, vice president. For Lincoln's first term, his vice president was Hannibal Hamlin— And Lincoln knew that during the war, he needed to pick somebody who the South could sympathize with and who could talk to the South. And he picked the only senator from a Southern state who did not secede with the South. And that was Andrew Johnson from Tennessee. Andrew Johnson was kind of a pushover, um, but he was likable enough for the South to be like, all right, at least one of us is in the White House, right? So maybe we can talk to him. But what nobody expected was for him to become the president and he is not Abraham Lincoln. He was not even close to Abraham Lincoln. So his reconstruction plan was somewhat similar because he also wanted to be done with this. He didn't want to be dealing with the radical Republicans in Congress, Um, but he was a southerner. So it was probably even more lenient, right? Um, They still had to be ratification of the 13th and the 14th amendment, which is the citizenship and equal protection under the um, law clause. But he also offered zero protection to African-Americans under this new statehood or rejoining. Uh, The problem that he had was that Thaddeus Stevens and the Radical Republicans absolutely hated him. And he was getting in the way of any type of reconstruction that they wanted. Their version of reconstruction was punishment. Their version of reconstruction included a lot of help for the freedmen in the South, including the Freedmen's Bureau. But Andrew Johnson would just kept... turning those bills down, wasn't signing any of them. So Thaddeus Stevens and the Radical Republicans got together and basically set up a trap for him and um, passed the Office of Tenure Act, which essentially was this garbage act that said that a president coming in from a president who had previously died cannot remove any of the cabinet members. And that's exactly what Andrew Johnson did. He replaced the Secretary of War. And so the minute he did that, Thaddeus Stevens Basically called it for impeachment the entire House and Senate is Republican at this point So it really was not difficult to get him um, impeached except for it passes through the house with ease But by the time his trial comes in the Senate He's found not guilty by one vote because there was a handful of people in the Senate who were like this is absolutely insane Like what are you doing? You're just trying to get this guy out and then who's gonna be the president? What do we do? So Johnson and the Radical Republicans strike a deal, and he basically says, fine, you are in charge of Reconstruction, it is all yours, I will not get in your way, the end. Oh, and I won't run for re-election. And Thaddeus Stevens is like, sweet, sounds great. So the Radical Republicans' version of Reconstruction is incredibly punishing and strict, and hard. It's very difficult for these states to come back into the United States, but consider the economies of these states. At some point, they're going to have to come back. So in order to do so, they have to ratify the 13th and 14th Amendment, but now added, we have the 15th Amendment, and that is a direct result of the Black Codes and the disenfranchisement that's happening in the South. Even though the Freedmen's Bureau is down there and they're Um, Doing what they can to protect the rights of African-Americans through contracts and education There's still a lot of disenfranchisement or stopping people from voting Um, So the you know 15th amendment makes sure that African-Americans are given the right to vote now It's males women still do not have the right to vote and that is a big problem many women who supported the abolition movement since the early 1800s are angry because Now, African-American men are allowed to vote, but just men. Still, women are left out of this, and that's going to cause a point of tension um, with women at this time. So, uh, basically, all of these countries coming in, being readmitted to the South. It's a long and arduous process, um, but um, it's going to end in 1877, but we're not there just yet.
0: Um, So, ultimately, reconstructed is considered an epic fail.
1: Um, there is pretty much
0: a lack of support for the African-Americans and these newly freedmen at the time. So we know that the Freedmen's Bureau tries, you know, 40 acres and a mule. They're going to give them all this territory that was collected from these, you know, southern plantation owners and the Confederate generals and people who had died in the war. The problem is towards the end of Reconstruction, when those federal troops pulled out of the South, all these plantation owners went back to their land and took it back. So there was no support for those freedmen keeping the land that was given to them through the Freedmen's Bureau. Um, we know that they're going to be stuck in cycles of tenant farming and sharecropping where the only skills they have is agriculture. We know that they have no money, they have no savings, they have no actual tools. So they're going to be stuck working for their masters on their master's land, um, you know, barely making any money, getting in these cycles of debt, which will last for generations. Um, we know that the South is going to pass pretty strict black codes, um, pretty much in all of the previous Confederate states. Um Not only do they pass these codes, but when you look at the Supreme Court and the federal government, no one really stops any of those black codes from happening. Um, So we know that despite the fact that they had the 13th, 14th and 15th, 15th Amendment, we also know that the South was essentially allowed to not give them those rights that they were given. With those reconstruction amendments, we're going to see, you know, massive disenfranchisement. This is where we see the introduction
1: of, you know, the literacy test, the grandfather clause, the poll tax, things like that. And the Supreme Court isn't ready to jump in and stop the states from doing that quite yet. There's too much going on. The Supreme Court is just not ready for that. The Supreme Court is almost kind of
0: turning a blind eye at this time. Um, So ultimately, Reconstruction is a failure because despite the fact that those three amendments were passed, the southern states were not required to enforce them. Um, And even though Plessy versus Ferguson is technically happening in period six, you know, that's really kind of that says it all as to where the government's mindset is in really kind of going through this transition with African-Americans at this time.
1: So Reconstruction officially ends in 1877 through a compromise. Um, If you remember the first corrupt bargain with Henry Clay. And John Quincy Adams and Andrew Jackson and all that stuff. This is the second corrupt bargain and what happens is in the election of 1866, I'm sorry 1876 um, There's not a majority winner and when that happens the House of Representatives gets to pick who the winner is going to be So Rutherford B. Hayes is a Republican and this is following a slew of Republican presidents, right? Grant, but Grant's presidency was just like soggy with corruption and just all sorts of crazy stuff. So Hayes really wants to win this, and he basically says to the Southern Democrats in the House, if you pick me, I will pull all of the military governors out of your states. And those governors were there who were supposed to be making sure that the um, African Americans in the South were being protected. Um, It was part of that kind of final phase of reconstruction. But once they are removed, there is literally nobody there to help the African-Americans in the South. And so this is considered to be the second corrupt bargain. And so they or also known as the Compromise of 1877. So once he's elected president, he pulls all of the uh, military governors out as well as the Freedmen's Bureau leaves. And so if you can only imagine now what the South looks like, we're gonna see the rise of the um, Redeemer Democrats, also known as the Dixiecrats. Um, And it's going to be a wild ride in the south be like a rise of the kkk and
0: all of these things because now anyone kind of protecting the african-americans or the new, newly
1: given rights that they had are now just, just out the window so that is where we'll end this podcast um and again this is not everything we said this each podcast this is not everything these are just the things that you had asked us about there's so much other context weaving or woven throughout all of this so just keep that in mind Welcome to A Push with Thunder Thunder Bacon. Bacon. We are almost done. Okay, so now we are in period six. Uh, Period six is the Gilded Age, which is going to overlap with period five. Period five ended in 1877, but now we're going to backtrack back to 1865 and talk about more of the changes happening domestically um, and with economics and political parties, etc. All right, so
0: looking at the Gilded Age, the major changes happening during this time, um, we have another wave of technology here. Don't confuse this with the Market Revolution. We don't call this the Third Industrial Revolution, but we're really seeing a change in technology here. So we have an expansion of the railroads. Railroads are not new; those, you know, are pre-Civil War. Um, however, now we're getting that, you know, transcontinental railroad, a massive expansion. Now that we're out of that Reconstruction period. Um, the development of the telephone and instant communication, obviously huge deal. Um, we see the rise of the oil industry, the steel industry, um, the invention of electricity, right? Like I know you guys can't live without electricity. Let's be real. We can't live without electricity either. Your phone
1: is dying. Yes, my
0: phone, I'm at 21% right now. Need that
1: electricity. Um, Like literally right now.
0: Um, The establishment of the assembly line with Henry Ford, you know, the development of the car. Not only the car, but by using the assembly line and interchangeable parts, we can mass produce cars. All of these things are either new or a new innovation that has improved an older technology. Um, Labor-wise, we know that more women and more children and more immigrants are working in the factory. That has not changed. Um, we know that wages are still low. However, with the, in, the implementation of electricity, we know that there are longer working hours. So if you're working a long shift, sucks for you. However, now we see second shift and third shift because of electricity, the factory can go 24 hours a day. Um, again, with that rise in production, this is going to lower prices as we produce more and more goods. And now we officially move into that age of consumerism. Um, and without this kind of production model, we wouldn't have seen you know what we see once we hit the 1920s. Um, we have further expanding markets during this time. At this time, we've, you know, we've conquered the West. We've done all of that. Um, so now we're looking to foreign markets. So we're going to try and move into Latin American territory to sell goods. And this is also when we get China's open door policy. We know eventually we'll reach out to Japan. Not quite yet. Um, but we're really pushing towards selling goods in China and those kinds of things. A couple of facts coming out of this. Um, As we have electricity and some of these new things, we have an increased standard of living. Now people have these new technologies and these new things that they can use, um, but it really changes their life. Ooh, one of them I forgot is refrigeration. Um, So all these different things are going to kind of make life better for the the average American. Um, We are going to see an increase in the wage gap during this time. The rich are getting richer. Think about our Carnegies and our Rockefellers and our JP Morgans. Um, The poor are getting poorer because they are these, you know, working class wage laborers. Um, But we also see the creation, a real creation of the middle class at this time. We know that it's slowly been evolving and developing. um, But now we really have that. Now we are officially in the age of that compulsory education that we've talked about. Um, We're moving more towards it. So we see that middle class birthed out of these families where the woman doesn't have to work. The kids don't have to work. So the mom is staying at home, taking care of the family, and the kids are able to go to school. And that's that birth of that middle class. Um, This is also where we have the creation of our urban areas and kind of that urban life So this is truly when we play that urban game where it comes from where we have all of the housing and the city centers And that develops, you know, like bars But also theaters and parks and all of these things associated with that urban life of a lot of people living in a small area The good and the bad
1: Um, So with all of that happening a lot of this is allowed to happen because of the government at this time We have a very pro uh, laissez-faire and pro-growth and pro-business, business-friendly government. It's a period of Republican dominance, with the exception of Grover Cleveland, twice non-consecutively, right? So where we left off was with, well, actually, I'm going to go all the way back, right, 1865. Yes, we have Johnson, but after that, we'll have Grant, we'll have uh, Hayes, we'll have Garfield and Chester A. Arthur and all of those people, Garfield's way later, but anyway, it's Republican dominance, um, And the Republicans at the time were very, very pro-business because business brings in a better economy for America. Also,
0: guess who funded the political campaigns? Oh, yeah, absolutely, all of those presidents. Yeah,
1: so and we'll talk about political bosses in a minute. The um, the um, lower taxes for businesses, um, the tariffs. There's all sorts of just very pro-business. Ideas, But at the same time you must remember what the South is going through right now They are still trying to get back on their feet and that's where the majority of the Democrats are There aren't many Democrats in Congress in the White House. Those redeemer Democrats aren't back quite yet So it's very easy for the Republicans to dominate this time period Um, however in the cities We have political bosses, Um, New York City, the most uh, famous, infamous, I guess one would be um, Boss Tweed and Tammany Hall. And these political bosses had a lot of different roles. Locally, these bosses were literally the boss, right? They were local politicians. Um, I mean, I'm not even talking like mayors. They're just lawmakers, local guys who were making promises to these immigrants that were coming in who had nothing, to the um, ethnic neighborhoods that were riddled with crime they're making these promises to help these people and to earn their votes and once they get voted into office they climb the ladder and unfortunately never go back and help right one example would be um, the uh, boss tweed would go around from neighborhood to neighborhood specifically the immigrant neighborhoods uh, saying hey you know I want to help you guys what is it that you need how about I throw you guys a barbecue and a picnic you guys all come you can eat for free I'll pay for all of it and you tell me exactly what it is that you need and I will make that happen if you elect me You know, they want playgrounds. They want safe places for their kids. You know, they want labor laws so that they're not dying in the factory. And he says, I promise I'll do all these things. And then when he gets elected, instead of, you know, doing the things he says, he taxes the heck out of them, pockets a bunch of that money, and then uses the rest of it to build a really fancy uh, government office building in New York. But at the same time, these guys are working in cahoots with your big business tycoons to fund the federal government so that they can do these big projects. So... There's a lot of corruption going on that shouldn't be a shock to anybody, um, but that's how the Republicans are able to be very pro-business. They're getting something out of it. They're getting reelected because of it. Um, we also see um, a couple of attempts to try and quiet these trusts in these corporations. As a reminder, you have your big industries and your big tycoons slash robber barons slash captains of their industry, whatever you want to call them. right? You have um, Standard Oil. Carnegie Steel, um, and they are absolutely 100% legal and allowed, but by 1890, the government is going to start to try to control them, and that's when the Sherman Antitrust Act is passed, but it gets taken to the Supreme Court, and it essentially is edited not necessarily repealed, but edited, saying that it only applies to commerce and not manufacturing. So what that does is all these American businesses and think these are all have to do with manufacturing in some way or another, are still able to do what it is that they're doing. Now, what is it that they're doing? Um, We'll talk a little bit later about just kind of the labor issues that we have, Um, but they per laissez-faire economy are allowed to just kind of do what they need to do with very, very little government interaction or regulation. Um, The labor unions are going to develop because of this, right? So we have large groups of people who decide that collective bargaining is going to be the best way to try and get their needs met per the government. And the laborers in the factories are not the only folks doing this. We're going to see the farmers do this as well. All right, We have a couple of panics that happen, um, one all the way back in 1873 and then again we have the panic of 1893 and the result of this are people getting together saying that the government must regulate the economy a little bit more and start making labor laws. Um, they will not be successful by any means in the 1890s, we'll have a couple of them, have the Knights of Labor, the American Federation of Labor, some are for skilled workers, some are for unskilled workers, um, but none of them are going to be effective because In no way is the federal government ever going to side with them. Um, The Democratic Party will eventually start to pick up on siding with the labor unions, but again, the Democrats don't have a lot of power in the government quite yet. Okay, they'll get that a lot more into the 1900s, right? So there's a lack of government support for those labor unions. They will come back in the progressive era, and we will start to see a lot happening with the progressive era. One thing I want to mention now, because um, we won't talk about this later, is the difference between Teddy Roosevelt Republican versus the Republicans of the 1880s and the 1890s. Teddy Roosevelt was a very different Republican. He was not even a Republican, but on paper, he was a progressive. Um, but he was the trust buster. He was the opposite of supporting the trusts. He was the first president to ever side with the workers. That was during the square deal with the coal miners, during the coal miner strike. So it's, it's, it's hard to kind of keep with the realigning political parties, but Teddy Roosevelt really is an anomaly. He stands out. He's very different than the rest of the Republicans at the time. Um, But going back into the 1890s, we also see a third party appear that's going to take a little bit of steam, and that's going to be the populists. And the populist movement starts way before the actual elections of 1892 and 1896. But the farmers have realized that hey, we are literally getting nothing, no help, nada from the government. We are completely ignored out West, and we are the people who are feeding the entire country, right? You have Cornelius Vanderbilt totally taking advantage of the farmers, and all of these trusts are are hurting the farmers, right? They can't afford the shipping costs. Um, There's all sorts of, um, or not regulations, but um, support to these manufacturing Businesses that are not helping the farmers and they're losing money and they are demanding help from the federal government But nobody in the federal government wants to help. So first they decide to create these cooperatives, right? If we just work together and are self-sufficient within our own group, maybe we can survive, but they can't Um, And I'm talking about really kind of like the West here. I'm not talking about California West, but like the uh, the Plains type West area as well. So then they get together and create the Farmers Alliance, which is like a pre-political party party. It's a group of people who get together. There's also the Grange of people who are starting to go around and see what kind of um, support they can get around the country. Is it just the farmers? The answer is no. The laborers have the same gripes with the government as well. There are many people, African Americans, have the same gripes with the government. There is no government support. It seems like the government, the federal government, and state and local governments are all supporting the wealthy class as well as the uh, manufacturing business. So finally... The populist party is born and the very first election that we have somebody running for president was james weaver in the election of 1892. now this is not the election that was the turning point but this is the election that allows for the turning point because we have a third party come in and that third party candidate was probably the most successful third party candidate ever almost i mean you could argue a couple of others but the context was so different But um, James Weaver does not win the presidency, we know this, but there are a couple of different populist governors. There's a couple of populist um, senators and representatives. So there was some sort of success. But as we creep into 1896, there is a big conversation being had with the federal government saying, okay, we now hear that there's a lot of voters out there that don't feel like the government is hearing their needs. The Republicans want to stay in the white house obviously and the democrats know that they need something absolutely drastic to get into the white house because the only democrat that's been in the white house in the past 20 years was grover cleveland so they know they need to do something drastic so first what they do is they pick William Jennings Bryan because he is just this super duper charismatic guy. Lots of people know him. Lots of people like him. But the second thing that they decide to do is pick up that populist party platform, which was the Omaha platform. And if they do that, then that's promising them the populist vote. The Democrats, there's no way that they can lose this election. Meanwhile, McKinley, who's running for the Republicans is sitting on his front porch paying people to go campaign for him, right? You've got um, William Jennings Bryan is going door to door, basically being Andrew Jackson, going and meeting people. He gives that cross of gold speech, just personifying the farmers as just the saviors of America. And Look at what we're doing. We're crushing or we're, we're pressing this crown of gold on their brow, alluding to them, you know, just the sacrifices they're making and look how we're treating them but it's not enough. And what it shows is that the election of 1896 shows that the government, uh, the federal government, um, has a lot of power over even the voters. If you think about all of the Democrats in the South and all of the um, populist Southwest, that still wasn't enough to win the presidency because the Republicans had the support of all of the big business owners who have a lot of money and a lot of influence in the Northeast, and that's where the majority of the population is living, right? And so there's so many conversations about the Electoral College and how it's antiquated. And this is really part of that conversation, right? How, tr- how, how democratic is this nation if the people, right? The Democrats in the South, your landowners, your farmers, your laborers, how democratic is it when their voices aren't being heard? But also, remember, women aren't voting. African African Americans in the South could vote, but realistically, are they voting? Probably not. So the answer is no. The the country is not very democratic at this point. And this kind of ushers us into this progressive era and a need for change in the 1900s.
0: We're also going to see patterns of migration during this period. We know with reconstruction and even the end of Re- even more so I think the end of reconstruction. We have the Great Migration. We see massive amounts of African Americans moving up north to go work in the factories. We'll also see our exodusters. We see groups of African Americans moving out west. Um, we start having immigration no longer from Western Europe with our Irish and our Germans, but Eastern Europe. Um this is gonna be a big deal which we know as we move into the nineteen twenties will really start to limit. Um we have Migration coming from the West for the first time. We have the Chinese coming over um, specifically to work on the railroads. And out of that period, we'll have the Chinese Exclusion Act, obviously, because, you know, immigrants. Oh, no. Um, that
1: anti-foreigner, the nativist sentimentality kind of pops back up. Even though it's the immigrants who are completely constructing the Transcontinental Railroad, the Irish to the East and the Chinese to the West. Um, and then westward expansion is still happening.
0: So as this territory in the west, they're now all states, it's all settled. Um, especially the poorer people or the people looking for jobs, more immigrants, really settling that western land. Um, this is where we really start to see those Native American wars and the Native American conflicts. Because we are not just like conquering the west anymore. We are actually fully settling it now, developing
1: cities and industry in the west as well. This is also an era of reform. We talked about the last reform movement in the 1830s-ish, and uh, we know that the progressive movement or era is gonna be in the 1900s-ish time through. I mean, it's, it lasts for a while um, but again, the, the need for reform is, is there. Um, Teddy Roosevelt is really going to spearhead that movement but what does reform look like at the time? Remember, immigration we have a lot of issues with immigration in terms of you know, we have the know-nothing parties but there's a lot of anti-immigrant sentiment in the government as well um, Are immigrants voting? Well, if they have any kind of um, political influence or, I'm sorry, time out Yes, immigrants are voting, and they do have a lot of political influence. So a lot of folks are wondering, how do we get them to stop voting? Um, When we talk about the immigration coming into your larger cities, uh, we see ethnic neighborhoods popping up. And we'll start to see like Eastern uh, Europeans come in lots of different folks are coming in But we also have this happening on the West Coast too, like San Francisco in these cities that are developing on the West It's not just New York or Boston um, in these ethnic neighborhoods. There is not a lot of money There is a lot of crime um, This is when we see like the slums right the uh, Jacob Rees takes those pictures and how the other half lives of these tenement houses um, the uh, settlement houses that are created, the most famous arguably is Jane Adams's whole house which is in Chicago. Today it's on the campus of University of Chicago. Um, these are all meant to help people who need it the most and are being ignored by the federal government. So immigrants for example. You may have a family of um, two parents and six kids. Both of those parents are working and if that's the case then who's watching the kids? Um, While well, some of these... a bug is in my hair. Look it's a ladybug. <laughs> Sorry. Um so uh, these parents are working. Who's going to watch the kids? So the settlement houses is essentially childcare, so people can work. Um, what happens if a, a woman's husband dies in the factory and she has to take care of her you know, family but doesn't have any skills, cannot get a job? It offers classes and education. So these settlement houses are part of kind of the larger social gospel, right, um, which is kind of also a long-term effect of the second great awakening. Um, the social gospel essentially is saying that um, People who can do good due to their wealth and their position in life should do good, which is a little bit different than the gospel on wealth with Andrew Carnegie. His is kind of geared more towards your really, really, really wealthy people, kind of giving justification to why it's okay for there to be such a big gap between the rich and the poor, right? Remember Carnegie, he's spending a lot of money on the arts and building colleges and universities. And so he's basically saying the same idea of the gospel of wealth, but like, at an extreme level, right? I'll look at all the good things that I'm doing for society, right? So I'm allowed to do what it is that I do by being sitting so rich. Um, we also have machine politics going on, which is no fun, and that is directly related to immigration, the ethnic neighborhoods, the lack of help that the government is, or the federal government is giving the people, excuse me, there's a UPS truck driving by and it's really loud. Um, and we have yet another temperance movement. Again, Again. Um, and, uh, this temperance movement is a direct reflection from the insane working hours, the lack of relief that laborers are getting. People are driven to alcohol. It's just, it's terrible. Um, so we'll see relief for many, not all, but many of these reform movements as we get into the progressive era in the 1900s. So I think that that's it guys. We are, we're done. We're good. Um, keep an eye out for the political... Um, screencast if you haven't looked at it yet Um, and hopefully this has answered a lot of your questions